Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there. You are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we feature sessions from Third Coast conferences and more. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. In this episode, we're listening to the session that wrapped up the 2016 conference. When they were just starting out in radio, Oddie Cornish of NPR and This American Life's Sean Cole worked together at WBUR in Boston. They would hang out and talk about the work that inspired them, and they divide between news stories and radio that is out for fun. Third Coast brought the pair back together to continue that conversation in front of the 2016 conference crowd. Okay, Here's a few of Oddie Cornish and Sean Cole's favorite things. Whoa, boy. There's so many a lot of, of you. We didn't know how many people there were here when we were sitting down there. Thanks hello, all for... Hello, thank everybody. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Yeah. Um, how are we feeling? Are you awake? Sleepy? It's 3.30 on a Sunday. All listened out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, when... Johanna and the Third Coast folks asked me to do this. They were like, hey, will you come and, and do this session? It's called Favorite Things, and the people who have done it are like, you know, Ira Glass and, like, the guy from Radiolab and people who do <laughs> really creative, amazing things who are really radio heroes. And I have to admit, my first instinct was to say no because I felt like, well, I'm a news person and I'm not doing anything all that jazzy. And um, it reminded me that... Uh, that instinct sort of reflects what is a long-running and probably even more pronounced conversation over the last couple of months in what I would call the great podcast think-piece wars of 2016, <laughs> of which I was not a part, but I looked on uh, with great interest. We've heard tell. We've heard tell. Yeah. And I realized that I do know someone that I've been having this conversation with for a very long time about... Uh, I have to do this in four minutes and I have to make it interesting, but also I want characters in it and why does that feel like a decision? Why doesn't that feel like something that is like organic to the process? And so I called uh, Sean Cole at 6.45 in the morning while I was driving in rush hour. While I was sleeping. You were sleeping. And... Um, <laughs> Which already immediately, like, it's 6.45 in the morning, Audie's, like, driving to work, and it's full of ideas and everything, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm not getting up until 10, so... Because yeah, yeah, I was, like, I in pre-ATC news mode, you know, I had, like, three other things to do, so yeah. I was just like, hey, hi, guess what, and then, you know what, and it would be great, and you were like, <laughs> uh... I don't really know what you're saying yet. Yeah, 
So after a while, I don't know if he had a cigarette in bed. He's still here, so I think he, he did not. But he woke up, and uh, I, I we're mean, here. Yeah. Initially, I was like, they want to hear your favorite. And she's like, no, 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 no. But it'll be fun because you know we talk about this all the time already, and we're already having these conversations. And then I I started to think about the conversations that we have on the phone and the friendship that we've had over the years. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess there is there is something to do surrounding that. And for the record, it's not a friendship born out of like talking about your ex-girlfriends and boyfriends and the cigarettes and all that. It actually is a friendship that's born out of me at first going outside and saying, I can't do this story. Can I just talk to you about it? Right. And then Sean actually answering. And then over time, as we got other jobs and went to other cities, calling each other on the phone and doing that same thing. Exactly. And, and also just like talking about um, the trajectories that we've both had, which seem kind of opposite. Like, you know, Audie works for a daily hard news show. I work for a weekly documentary show that has a strong focus on storytelling and narrative. But at the same time, like, we are still trying to do the same thing. We've always tried to do the same things and continue to try to do them. And that's how to balance the training that we had in the same newsroom and how to convey important information in story form to people at the same time, like Audie says, not jettisoning, you know, characters and plot and, and real moments that, that resonate with people. Um, and so we decided that we would start by playing a favorite thing of each other's, um, which the goal was for that, the goal throughout this whole thing was that so we wouldn't, we would surprise each other and we wouldn't know what um, the other was going to play and then Audie left her audio in DC. And so we Do you see had how to, excited he is to tell you that? To, that I messed up? Like we had to re-download it. And so I know roughly what she's going to play, and she doesn't know what I'm going to play. So it's like it's like my real job where I have a producer who knows more than me. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. Uh, so. All right, so yes, we wanted to play something from each other, and uh, the thing I am going to start with is a piece uh, by Sean. It is in an episode of This American Life called Transformers, uh, which aired last year, uh, early winter. And in it, Sean is talking to uh, an author who is telling the story of how he came out to his parents, and this happens in 1989. And uh, he, he gets this sort of unexpected reaction, and Sean is essentially learning about the story with us. Andy says that night he announced the Mumblety Peg hadn't worked. His dad responded with, I have to think about this a while. And then Andy did what you do in 1989 suburban Maryland when you've just come out to your parents. He drove to the mall. He wandered in and out of stores, thinking about what just happened. And when he got back to the parking lot he realized he'd locked his keys in the car, his mom's car, that he'd borrowed in order to drive off in a strident blaze of glory. Because I was like, ran out of the house like I'd won this round. So I found a payphone, it's 1989, right? So called my mom, mortified, and I thought, well, now I've really screwed it up. Locking my keys in the car has proved how I'm not responsible adult at all. How could I even know that I'm gay, right? So Andy's in a snowy parking lot, alone. Finally, his mom drives up in the family's other car, gets out, and if this were a much shorter story, she would have simply given him the spare set of keys and driven home. 
but instead she unlocks the car and then gets in the other, the passenger side and sits in the car with me. And closes the door. Closes the door. And you're like, what are you doing? Well, I'm thinking, oh, no, now we're going to have the talk that I fled. <laughs> she looked not happy. You know, I was ready for that whole thing. I can't believe what you just did to our family, something like that. Um, and what did she say? She said, about what you said earlier, I think I'm gay, too. What? Yeah. <laughs> I was really surprised. I'm, I don't know. Really, my, the emotion I felt was, I am completely off the hook now. Oh, I thought, this, oh my God. This is way bigger than my story. No one's going to care about me. Like, once I really understood what she was saying... Um, You're like, I have nothing to worry about. I have nothing to worry about. That was the first thing he thought. The next thing was more like, what the hell's going on here? After all, Andy was a 19-year-old college sophomore at this point. He still thought that once you reached middle age, you didn't change anymore. Like, his parents were these two paintings hanging in the house. Paintings that cooked him dinner when he came home. I hadn't considered, like, you could actually propose a completely new life and that you've been thinking about it all along all along my whole life she'd been waiting for this oh i did forget to say after she said um i think i'm gay too long pause and then she says don't tell your father so you have to keep this secret from your dad right <laughs> Which is the hugest secret. I was just... Couldn't bear it. It was such a huge secret. I'm trying to think of a bigger secret you could keep from your dad. Murder. You murdered somebody. Yeah. Or your mom murdered somebody. My mom somebody. murdered somebody. Your mom murdered somebody. Yeah. That would be bigger. Yeah. Or your mom is Spider-Man. Yes. That would be but bigger. But that's kind of how it felt, like my mom was Spider-Man in some way. Because to me, it was all so exciting that I knew her secret identity. Um... The, the things were all together um, in my head. Okay. <laughs> so I have so many questions. This is why I'm playing this piece. So there's a couple things, there are a couple reasons why this is my favorite. One is that um, obviously it unfolds like a real conversation. And uh, this, I just actually have a bunch of questions about this because the story unfolds so naturally that I don't get it because you sat down with the person knowing their story. Yeah. And as someone who basically sits down with people with an enormous amount of prep going into stories, sometimes it is actually legitimately hard to surprise me because I have seen that person make quotes in several places. I've actually prepared counter questions for what I think they're probably going to say. Um, this doesn't happen with civilians and regular people, but it happens a lot with, like, you know, politicians and people who get interviewed a lot. And so I want to know from you how you maintain a sense of surprise and balance that with preparation. I mean, there's a bunch of things to say about that interview, but chief among them is that, is that 
Andy Greer is possibly the best interviewee I've ever had. I mean, it was like having a great improv partner or dance partner like you. He's so suggestible, and yet, you know, and I mean, it's not like you, I felt like I was leading him by the nose, but he like follows, he yes-ands you in that improv way. And like, like with the Spider-Man thing, I was just so impressed that he made something out of it. Yeah, that was such a dumb joke. I, was still, I, was, I would have cut I was, it. Remember, I was hearing that, and I'm like, that is so Sean. Like, I that's would've... not at all And a like, thing. And I, just, I was just bullshitting around. I didn't know what but I was it, talking about. Yeah, he helped and you. And he was just like, no, it's like, you know what? And I was like, oh, my God, bless you. Um, <laughs> and um, no, so I think that the surprise, like, we had just a great rapport, and there was, like, a bunch of things that happened before that moment that I didn't know, and so I think that there was, like, a sense of surprise already, just like in our interaction. And obviously I did know that his mom had come out to him back. Um, but you know, like... Yeah, you were like, what? Somebody needs like, to say what in that moment. Going on where there's here. only two of us in the room. Someone yeah. needs to express shock. I do the what a lot. I like, there was a, there was a guy, I did a story about, um, about uh, the, five, the 12 days of Christmas, and it doesn't matter what it was about, but basically like, it was about, you know, this guy, uh, this or P- PNC Wealth Management, they, they tell you how much the, five, the 12 days of Christmas, the gifts in the song cost every year and blah, blah. And it turned out that the, this guy told me that um, the five golden rings, there's five golden ring pheasants. And, I, and he told me that on the phone. And I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah. And so we get in the interview and he goes, yeah, the five golden rings pheasants. I go, what? He goes, exactly, I know. Isn't it surprising? And I, he knew that I knew. And he kept talking as though I didn't know. So they, they, they're in on it if you give a little prep. It it's just like. we're both telling a story. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. I have one other question, which yeah. is, what news training did you learn to reject early in the process? <laughs> what news training? Yeah. Miking my questions. Mike, or to not mic your questions. Right. Um, I won't name check him, but there is a... Audie will know who I'm talking about. There's, there was a very sort of grumpy, angry person who trained both of you too, right, at WBUR, editor, newsroom producer, and um, he was like, he sent me out to, you know, do Vox, it was like the news of the day was like, oh, sheesh, it's hot, talk to people about that, and like, so I was like, so what do you think of the heat, whatever, and, uh, and they were... It's Boston. It's Boston. That's a totally valid Boston and story. And so, and I bring the tape back, and he was like, oh yeah, we can't use this. He goes, you hear, he's, listen, he's like, you're going, mm-hmm, 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 you see, we can't your voice is on the tape. And so it was like, don't, you know, be in, in the conversation. I had, to, I had to beat that out of myself. Yeah, don't step on the tape. I think, the I tape. think all of you have basically unlearned that at this point. That, that is not, like, I think as no. strict as it used to be. But, yeah, there was a big thing of, like, don't ruin your tape with your yucky emotions and point of view. Or your, and, or yeah, your like, existence. Or your existence. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's changed a little bit. All right. All right. My, so now I'm going turn. to play. I get to play a story of part of a story of Audie's that I really like. I don't think I need to set it up because Audie is the host of her program, and so it is self-contained. You do enough reporting on public health, and eventually you will end up on an HIV testing or needle exchange van. These programs are aimed at stopping the spread of infectious diseases, and the people who run them. They're the foot soldiers of public health initiatives across the country. They are the reason we are effective at our jobs. Dr. Lena Wen is health commissioner in Baltimore. We can't sit in our office in our headquarters here and say this is the policy that the city should follow. That's never going to work. 
And while we've been following her the last few months to see how she faces down the city's ills, this story isn't about her. It's about a face you'd see in the background. Hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Wynn. This, this nice is Dr. Wynn. This I'm is the, the health, health commissioner for Baltimore City. Okay, there. You hear that second voice? Health commissioner for Baltimore City. That's Nathan Fields. We met him over the summer as he was teaching people how to use the anti-overdose drug naloxone. He's 55 years old, a veteran outreach worker, and yes, he does in fact work some nights on the HIV testing and needle exchange vans. That's where we find him now. So we're on the corner of Gay and Baltimore Street where all the glitter is, all the glitter and the glam. We're right in the center of it. It's called The Block, Baltimore's infamous stretch of strip joints with names like Club Harem and Circus. Their neon signs flicker every night in the heart of downtown. Fields is just over six feet tall and towers over people like a coach. And I say coach because he's decked out in head-to-toe navy blue New England Patriots gear. Despite being born and bred in Baltimore, he's a Pats fan, a friend once played for the team. And even this deep in Baltimore Ravens territory, his wide smile is returned by everyone. I love you, man. Club owners, doormen, the dancers, or as Fields calls them, the girls. There are two vans parked around the corner from each other, white RVs staffed with health workers. One does needle exchange and anti-overdose training, the other pregnancy tests, HIV tests, flu shots, and more. And then there are the condoms, wood-paneled cabinets full. Fields estimates they'll give out some 2,000 by the end of the night. Just as the staff gets organized, their first visitor runs up to the van. Okay. Hey, how you doing, man? A dancer. She goes by the name April. She's wearing metallic gold five-inch platform heels. Look at the shoes I just got myself. Oh, cool. (laughs) You know what I come for, though. I know what you come for. I know. Fields fills a brown paper lunch bag with condoms. He calls it a club bag. It's to share with the other dancers. Then he digs into another cabinet for more supplies. Plastic bags of toiletries. You got tampons and stuff on here? Can you put Band-Aids in there this time as well? Before April heads back to work, Fields checks on one more thing. How's the baby? He is awesome. Oh my God, he's awesome. (laughs) He keeps track of babies and boyfriends. He arranged his own wedding date so he wouldn't miss his night offering health services to the block. Fields is the definition of committed. The block is like living. So these relationships, you got to keep them flourishing. one quick thing, no matter how long you do this, and I've been doing it for 15 years, you just have a moment where you hate hearing the sound of your own voice. It's like I know so that brutal. feeling. I'm, I'm having it even now. Um, no, the reason I picked, I mean, it's just so good, and the reason I picked it is that there's just surprises littered throughout those, I think that was three minutes, um, right from the get-go, where you're saying you do enough reporting about public health and eventually you'll end up on an HIV testing or needle exchange van. So right out of the gate, you're getting in front of the, of like, that listeners might think, oh, that story. But by doing that, it's kind of a little bit of a jujitsu of like, no, it isn't that. Like by saying that, you're saying it isn't that story. And you're cottoning to the process. You're sort of breaking down the fourth wall in a couple of ways. One is saying like, I'm a reporter. And then the other 
which is a very un-NPR thing to do, is the blip thing with the sound effect, I find like, I don't, you don't, I was just like, oh. And so it's like, yes, we are, you know, radio producers working with tape, and I'm going to play this for you again. And it was just like, and, and like, and, and the really interesting double flip of like, this is the health commissioner, she's gonna say something very rote. And then you say, and this, is, this story isn't about her. And so 36 seconds in, I'm just like, I have a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, immediate, well, Im- immediately saying, this story doesn't about here. Immediately I have a question, obviously, which is, I'm sorry, I keep tripping over things here. Which is like, well, what, who is the story about? What is the story about? And so that's going to keep me engaged. So how did you, why did you okay. decide to, instead I'm, of just I'm going I'm sort right of fascinated by you picking this. We both sent each other like, Here's a, some things I liked that I did in the last couple of years. Yes. You choose what you want, so it's a little bit of a surprise for me. <laughs> so, uh, well, a couple things. One, my producer who pitched this story, this was not my pitch, and one thing about being a host and the re- transition from reporter to host is it took out of my hands the process of pitching sometimes and set up. So this producer comes to me and she's like, oh, I want to do something about the public health commissioner in Baltimore and, you know, we can go on the HIV AIDS van. And I'm like, I have done that story like literally 15 times. Like I, I cannot get on another HIV AIDS van. I get it, but I cannot do it again. And so we sort of fought about it. Mm-hmm. And that was the compromise was me awesome. doing that as the lead of the story. I didn't know that. The second thing that happened is... One of the things that I've learned from you over the years is to, when I'm in a uh, writer's block, to very literally try to write the thing exactly how I experienced it. And so in this case, the idea was, I want to do a story about that guy that's always standing behind the health commissioner. Because that dude is like the dude that they put in the stock photo of the health commissioner story, but don't talk to. And the rest of that story goes on to hear about his background and the fact that his son had been murdered a few months earlier as some of the uh, homicides upticked in Baltimore and he had been there just for so long and he just kept doing the work and it just, it's like I wanted to do something that, that respected the fact that every two to three years there was a new health commissioner in Baltimore and that person always got a bunch of glowing press profiles about how great it was that they were coming down from wherever to help the people of Baltimore. But meanwhile, lots of people had just been working really hard, like doing the work all the time. And I wanted to do something for them. And so he was that guy. Well, and he's an automatic character, like in a way that nothing against her with the way that the health commissioner sort of isn't. I mean, like her job is always forward facing. And so, but so my other questions are kind of all the same question, but it's like, how long were you in the van? Who else came in? How long before she came in? And is, why did you choose her? I'm not sure other people came oh, in. Oh, very, that's an easy one, actually. Okay, so a lot of people came into the van. Um, young couples came into the van, and people asked for ID. People asked for help with their health records. People asked for like where can they get like dental support? I mean, it was really, it's an all purpose point of contact for a huge number of people. And with all of those things, this woman comes on and those heels were the business. 
I mean, this woman was beautiful, and the, these heels were not to be fucked with. And she was so charming and smiling, and, and then she asked for goddamn Band-Aids. And I just, I, that hit me so hard, yeah. that you would be out here working, kid at home, and you need Band-Aids. Um, the tampon thing. Yeah. You know, Nathan has sons. He doesn't have, he has daughters. Um, but he was so comfortable around these young women, but not in a way that made any of us uncomfortable to witness it. Um, and was very much a father figure and looked so ridiculous in this Patriots costume. It was just like, what, yeah. like everything about this just doesn't make sense. Well, and like to the detail, you, you were really good at, at, at the little details. And none like, of that was in there. That's one other thing I want to say. All of that stuff about what he looked like, that was not in the piece. And one, I went home to my husband and I'm like, this is not working and I don't know why. Right now I just feel like we're on the block <laughs> in Baltimore, you know? And like, it just seemed really hackneyed. And my husband was like, well, there, you're not telling me any, like nothing in here is the stuff you told me when you came home that night. And I basically just went into work the next day and put in everything that I should have put in the first time around. I wish I was married. <laughs> I don't have a... I didn't tell you about all the other shit that went down that night. That was like... <laughs> uh, you know. All y'all with spouses, you get like a built-in editor in your house. You do. Though in fairness, sidebar, I did marry my editor who I met at the Associated Press. Right. When I met Sean. Advice for everyone. So, marry your editor. Yeah. This was not entirely appropriate. Um, so the next thing we're going to do is just play our other favorite things. So th these are just things that uh, we like that are, so I think, is it all radio? Mm. I don't know if it's all radio. You have a... Entirely, oh, that's true. That's, that's true. Thing, we think. have a mix of things that we're going to play. And then afterwards, we're going to have uh, some Q&A time. You guys might be burned out on Q&As, but we're still going to leave a little room for it. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with a note from the Third Coast folks. Um, but this is the next portion of the proceedings. So uh, in thinking about how to do this, I had, it's, I don't, I, it's very hard to do favorite things. I'm the kind of person who's like, if you ask me my favorite color, I'm like, I don't know, orange, maybe blue. Like, I don't have a favorite things. And there is this one thing, though, that I love and that... I am trying to achieve in my own work. Should I just play it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, we're just gonna play it.
Okay, uh, so that is from the 1979 movie The Warriors, which uh, you either kind of know and are obsessed with or have never heard of. Um, it is a really weird, highly stylized movie about like a depiction of street gangs in New York that are trying to like fight their way from Coney Island to the Bronx. Anyway, so the, it's lovely casting. And the reason why I love this piece, and maybe you felt it too, I hope you felt it too, is that this is about the place in between places and the tension that is inherent in that space. I don't think anybody in this room like, hasn't been in that moment on one side of the train or the other. And it is this crazy weird movie. I feel like a bunch of you will go see it now and be like, Audie Cornish just sent me to see the weirdest movie. But <laughs> that moment is universal. That moment is what the kids are calling, you know, intersectionality. Like, this is the moment where you have, like, the slut and the good girl and the bad guys and the class thing and the awkwardness and the, yeah. like, just... And the story of it, of that moment, like just when I mean, it's like a perfect little narrative, you know. And like when it, sorry, it just when I'm sorry when she um goes to smooth her hair and he takes her hand down. It's just really moving. It's really moving. And um, yeah, I love. I I only just rewatched them. I didn't know that that was what Audie picked until we had to like. And he had the Recut same reaction. It. I was like, was "Oh my like God, a, the war!" An hour ago, um, <laughs> and I'm and, uh, I'm not I'm not sentimental, but you know, I was <laughs> I was I was watching your faces when he moved her hand, oh and God. I know you were all like, "That's love." It's, like, well, it's that, also yeah. like, no, you're better than that. Yes, you're better than that. You're better than that. And they're characters who had just met that night, and just like I just feel like there's so much writing yeah. in that two minutes. Do you need some time? I'm fine. I'm fine. This is, this is the other thing is in our friendship, Audie right. is the guy. I'm the, yeah. The, the, in, the, in the stereotypical uh, heteronormative yeah. Yeah, description. Yeah, uh, But basically, this is what I am trying to do. And a lot of times I feel like I wish my own producers at my show like understood this about me and the things they pitch me is I mostly want to pitch things that are, that are about, like I want to hear about the places in between. You know, the block is in between. It's like not here or there. It's the place where you need Band-Aids, but the CVS is like two blocks away, but you can't make that happen. Um, and I try and look for those spaces in all of my work. So, and then my next one, um, again, I don't think I have to say anything about it um, because it sets itself up, but it's a piece by... Um, by Scott Carrier, who, um, it's the piece that pretty much made me want to do this stuff. 
Um, and it's a real sleeper from a long time ago um, when the early years of this American life's existence. It was 1998. I mean, even people who were there at the show then don't remember it, uh, to my knowledge. Um, so, and again, I think it just, it's the open of the, this is the first few minutes of the piece. February 17th, 1957, was the worst day of Harvey Matuso's life. At 2.30 in the morning, his mother called to say that his father had died. At 8.30, his boss called to tell him not to come into work, that he was fired. At 11.30, his wife called from California, saying she was close to Mexico and that she wanted a divorce. Then at 2.30 in the afternoon, Harvey's lawyer called to say that the Circuit Court of Appeals in New York had turned down his appeal and that he'd be going to a federal penitentiary for five years. You know what Harvey did? I laughed. I couldn't stop laughing. People were coming to my mother's house to you know, pay respects to get ready for the funeral. And there I was laughing. And a friend of mine said, read the book of Job. And I read the book of Job that night and I continued to laugh. And I took on the name Job that day. And I've identified with him ever since. Job Matuso, born a Jew in the Bronx. Job Matuso, ready to die a Mormon in Glenwood, Utah. Job Matuso, liberator of Europe. Job Matuso, communist. Job Matuso, who turned and became a paid informant against the communists during the McCarthy era. Job Matuso, who turned again and said he'd lied and made it up and that the Justice Department knew he was lying and in fact encouraged it. Job Matuso, the most hated man in America. Job Matuso, cocky boo the clown. Job Matuso, who's been married ten times to nine different women and is still one of the loneliest old men you'd ever want to meet. Job Matuso, manager, program director, and creator of SCAT TV, the first and only public access station in central Utah. Job Matuso, con man who tells you up front that he's a con man and then cons you. Job Matuso, coyote of all coyotes. I represented the most anarchistic of anarchists. I turned on the communists and then I turned on the extreme right and put a plague on both their houses. I just get chills whenever I hear um, the beginning of that story. And the story in general, I used to carry it around like a, like a record and just like listen to it. Um, because it was really, it was this shock of recognition moment that you have sometimes where I was just like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Like, in a bunch of ways. Like, he tells the whole story at the very beginning of the, an encapsulated version at the very beginning of the piece in list form. And, you know, I, I, which just like the, the, that decision alone is such a, came out of a, a stream of thinking that I just, I hadn't, that wasn't, you know, his coming up in radio was entirely different from my coming up in radio. Like, like I had to really break a lot of, um, of little tiny Christmas bulbs in order to like get to where, to a point where I felt like I was trying to do something different. And, um, and just also his voice, just like, you know, I, I wanted, 
I don't think I've ever told Scott this because I don't think he'd like it, but he's really my, my radio hero. Um, and I, so I guess instead of telling him, I'm telling a room I, full I of hundreds of people. guess that you chose this. <laughs> like I was thinking, like if I had chose one of your favorite things for you, I would have chosen this. Have, so I've told you about this? No, but uh-huh. when I, I heard you talk about it once, and I, um, for those of you who don't know about Sean's background, even though he started with me at WBUR and was... Uh, morning edition producer? Yeah, production cutting, assistant. Production assistant, cutting two A's. Um, and he's the also a poet. Um, and there's a lot, there's lyricism to that work that seems like it would appeal to you. Yeah, I think that's true too. It's just like it marries, like I always feel like in me, the radio storytelling and the poetry are competing because I spend so much time in my job in my job trying to be like crystal clear and convey information in the best way that I can that it it's like rusted the latch of of the you know of the part of my brain that can dream and um and so that I was just like oh yeah like there is like maybe those two things are are close can be closer than you think and if you couldn't hear the words like like what if they were just notes yeah. And I think that's something I, I listen for in people's work that I admire, like really good writers and people who are good at delivery is like, if you, if you, it was just da-da-da-da-da, like yeah. would you still want to listen to still it? Li- and his voice is just, I mean, famously. I wanted to sound like him when I started in my first piece for This American Life, which was like only a year later or something. I tried to sound like him and I just sounded tired. Now that you're further along in your career, do you listen to pieces like that with a different sensibility? Are you harder on them? Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's really like when you spend uh, so much time, like, not only on your own pieces, but on everybody else at the show's pieces. Like, we all edit each other's stuff. And so I'm, it's kind of bad. I'm, like, editing everything I listen. Like, I listen to Morning Edition and edit everything in the shower. Um, I edit you while you're talking to me. Yes. Yes. Have you done this? Yes. Okay, yeah. So you're in a conversation with yeah. someone, and they're like, yeah, it was crazy, because then so-and-so, like, came in the kitchen, and then, and I was like, cut. Yeah. And, and then come back. Yeah. I do the, yeah. there's a game that I'll play with myself where, like, we'll be talking, no, I shouldn't be saying, because I know, yeah. I know. No, you're all very interesting. I've had wonderful conversations no, no, no. with all of you. But, like, I'll be talking to somebody, and then, and they'll say something, and I'll jump in with, like, a, a like, you know, just a clarification question, and they'll go, yeah, 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 and then, and I'm like, are they going to do it, are they going to do it, and they'll go right back to where they were, and I was like, okay, great, I can cut out my question. <laughs> Sorry. No, um, good, I have... You're on. Okay. Uh, let's see. I have... Uh, I don't think I labeled no, these. No, not that one. Yeah, okay. let's do this. This one. Okay. Okay, so um, the next piece is from BuzzFeed's Another Round podcast, which I know one or two people have heard of at this point. Uh, but I sort of got to know the people who put it together. Uh, I don't think Jenna Weisberman is here. She's amazing. Um, but also Heben Nagatu and uh, Tracy Clayton are fantastic young women. And they came to D.C. to interview um, Valerie Jarrett, who 
is like a Washington White House person advisor to Obama. And I was talking to them about something they were planning to do, which was an interview of Hillary Clinton. And they were really prepping very hard for it. And it was a great thing to experience because we were all at this dinner, like Washington people advised like, okay, you should ask this, you should ask that. And they're taking it in like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're very well prepared. And I think there is a misconception out there that podcasts that have people who sound irreverent are not people who are prepared if that makes sense, yeah. that they're off the cuff somehow. Whereas my experience of good radio is that the, the, it is actually the best radio, like a lot of work goes into the lightest sounding stuff. Maybe that's because I'm not that good and I have to work very hard, but like the more it sounds like, ha ha ha, and I had another thought, the longer it takes. Um, the pop culture uh, happy hour podcast, we do at NPR. We tape for a good hour. You hear 45 minutes of that. Um, I don't know if Sam Sanders is here still, but the um, NPR politics podcast, which is very popular and very well done, I've said to people on occasion, like, it better be, because it's real expensive. Yeah. There are four editors. There are half a dozen reporters. There are two producers. They take two hours to do it. Of course it is good, okay? <laughs> Takes a lot of work to make all of this stuff. Radio Lab, famous example. Radio, yeah, exactly. The off-the-cuffness the off of one minute can take four hours <laughs> of recording. So here is my favorite question on uh, another round. But we made progress. Now I think in some areas we're stalled. So we've got to, you know, put some, you know, energy behind pushing forward and getting more people to do what they should be doing anyway. I'm very glad that you mentioned um, the very deplorable state of the prison system right now. You were talking about how people of color are arrested at disproportionate amounts over white folks. And tying this back into the Black Lives Matter movement um, or the conversation that you had with the activists, that conversation felt very um, unfinished to me. And I was reading some interviews with the young woman you were talking to. I think her name is Danasia Yancey. I hope I'm saying this right. My reading of it, again, I don't want to speak for her. My reading of it is that a lot of people feel like you and your husband, former President Bill Clinton, are implicit in the the policies that were passed and some of the legislation that was passed in the 90s, um, the tough on crime initiatives, the three strikes rule. I feel like what they were looking for and what a lot of black people are looking for is for you and or your husband to shoulder some responsibility in the crisis that we're facing now. So my question to you is, do you ever look at the state of black America today? We can focus on the prison system for now. And regardless of what the intents were, like I know that the 90s were like, it was a different time, you know, times change, legislation changes, needs change. But regardless of your intent, do you ever look at the state of black America and say, wow, we really fucked this up for black people? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what I think, and my husband has spoken to this. He spoke about this at the NAACP just last summer. You always have to learn from what you do. I was interviewed by Al Sharpton the other day, and I've known him a long time because I represented New York. And he said, and I think it's good to be reminded of this, that in the 90s, and particularly when my husband became president, there was a great demand 
not just from America writ large, but from the black community to get tougher on crime. And Al Sharpton said this. He said, I was one of those people who was asking that we get tougher on crime and that we clean up our neighborhoods and we stop gangs from killing each other. And he said, I was, you know, going around boarding up crack houses. And he said, so we can't go back and say that we didn't ask that a lot of this be done because we did. I think what's important is you take stock of what was done and you figure out what needs to change and what we have seen over the course of now, you know, a number of years is that too many low-level offenders, too many nonviolent offenders ended up in prison and that became a terrible strain and drain on the African-American community because too many you know, again, predominantly, not exclusively, men uh, were ending up incarcerated. So I, I think, you know, what my husband said when he spoke to the NAACP was, look, you know, we've learned a lot and, you know, took responsibility for whatever the impact of the legislation, but also re being reminded there were reasons why that legislation was passed and very strongly supported across communities of color and everybody else. In a democracy, you're supposed to be able to keep being a learning political system. And now we got to say to ourselves, as people are, hey, maybe there were some good intentions, but those intentions had unintended consequences, and we got to deal with those consequences. But it's not enough, in my opinion, as some on the Republican side are saying, well, you know, let's just change the sentencing and all of that. I'm for all of that. But let's also provide more supports in the community. Let's also, you know, make sure that people who are diverted from the uh, criminal justice system have a real chance to get, you know, the services and support they need to build their lives. So this is now, I think, got to be a broader conversation than just, you know, change the sentencing and, and you know, move low-level offenders out of the, uh, the prisons because that has to be done, but that's not enough. Do you think that that answer is a good enough answer for the people of color who are right now in jail because of a very, very broken system. Look, most of the people... Um, so I, I played the whole answer, and I'm sure everyone, people might have different interpretations about the usefulness of that answer, which was in effect, my black friend said it was okay, and I didn't do that shit. Um, and I mean, you know, as far as political speak goes. And the reason why I wanted to play it is because this is a question that comes from somebody who was learning to and established faith in their own voice. And this is really important because if you don't have it, you make life harder for yourself and everyone else because you don't take criticism. You don't reach out and get advice. You don't... Uh, like just even take in, like for them, they prepped a lot. They just talked to reporters. They didn't say, oh, I shouldn't be doing this interview. Maybe I'm out of my league. Oh my God, what's going on? They like took it all in and then they started to ask questions from their own point of view and then they listened to the answers, right? At the end of that long answer, she was like, and do you think that's satisfactory? It's a good question. Do you think that's enough? A lot of like, well, um, other people said, and what happened was, and then another thing, like maybe that is not satisfactory. And there were, in that question, 
actually represented a, a large swath of voters who were reluctant to come around to this candidate precisely because of this issue. So it was something that spoke to her audience that she was presenting right. this to. And who else would have asked the guy? I mean, like, higher exactly. profile interviews that more people consumed. The, and uh, I, those... I wouldn't have asked it. Yeah. And I'm not asking you all to go out and swear at the people you're interviewing. So don't get that twisted. I don't want to see some tweet hashtag, you know. I actually don't want to see any tweet hashtags. Yeah, but don't tell anyone that Audie Cornish told you to tell politicians, like, did they fuck shit up? It's not always necessary. Um, But given how many times that this candidate had been approached on this issue and in various venues, having that one-on-one moment and then having the courage of your convictions to carry through on a line of questioning that you believe in is important. Um, my next thing is also sort of a political thing, um, although one from a long time. I think my, all of mine are kind of from a long time ago, but um, except for the one I played of Audis. But this is um, from Elise Spiegel, who after This American Life and before Invisibilia was at NPR News doing science stories, um, mostly behavioral science, and then she would also do these little news stories. And she hates... Um, it when I play this story, and she's going to hate that I played it, but I love it so much for, it's simple, I mean, it's, it's like, it's pretty short, it was on, um, it's from 2006, and basically Congress was investigating uh, the NSA program that collects phone records, our phone records, um, but then the Washington Post did this poll that basically said that a lot of people were in favor of the program, or, or they approved of it, so Elise did this kind of like nothing assignment where she goes on out to the Washington Mall to interview people about, you know, what they think of the NSA program and like what their feelings are about privacy versus security, et cetera. Um, And this is what she came back with. I found Bob Selenard walking the path beside the Vietnam Memorial, a tall, thin figure smoking a cigarette. When I introduced my topic, he pumped his fist in the air and told me that the government did, quote, just the right thing. The terrorist wanted to destroy us, he explained. It was as simple as that. I'd rather be alive and have somebody know who I call than be dead. How do you feel about privacy in general? Do you feel like it's an important value? No, I don't. Selenard was very clear on this point. He didn't care if the government looked through his email or listened to his phone calls. He merely shrugged when I asked how he would feel if they searched his home without a warrant. So why do you think some people think that privacy is so important? Because they have something to hide. I heard this idea echoed over and over during my day on the mall. It was only the guilty who had reason to fear. The innocent could sleep easy. There's nothing I say that's going to be come back to me and hurt me at a later time in my life. If you're not hiding anything, there's no pro- there shouldn't be a problem with it. It was as if concern for privacy was a new kind of litmus test a way to separate the good from the bad in a post-9-11 world. In fact, one man, Dave Stone, a Vietnam vet with an American flag on his lapel, saw the abandonment of privacy as a kind of patriotic sacrifice, one of those uncomfortable adaptations that are sometimes required in the heat of conflict. Look at World War II. Everybody was on rationing. Nobody cried about it. You had gas stamps, food stamps. I'm, I'm an old soldier. I'm a warrior. And we fight. And if it takes a little bit of uh, uh, losing a little bit of your privacy, then that's what it takes. And Stone wasn't the only one who felt the threat of terrorism so intensely that he was ready to compromise rights. 
Jim Pardykes told me that it made him feel better to know that the government was searching phone records. It was just the way it had to be right now. Some of our freedoms that we have had, we're going to unfortunately have to lose some of them in order to catch the, uh, the bad guys. During my day on the mall, I spoke with 15 people. Only two registered a strong objection to the NSA program on privacy grounds. Most, like Dave Stone and Jim Pardykes, seemed ready and willing to make compromises, to face what they saw as uncomfortable realities. In the Sophie's choice between security and privacy, security was the clear winner, and most seemed to feel that it was an easy sacrifice to make. The night after I went to the mall, I stopped by a bookstore, and browsing the stacks, I found a book by the legal scholar Jeffrey Rosen called The Unwanted Gaze. In it, he talks about a concept in Jewish law called Hezik Riaya, which can be translated as the injury caused by seeing. Basically, the idea is that when people are constantly watched, it leads them to have more constricted lives. That if there is no place on this earth where people can let their hair down, a backstage where they can indulge their eccentricity, absurdity, even stupidity, then things like individuality, creativity, and even love suffer. The act of being watched changes us, inhibits us, makes us, in some ways, less willing to be human. But this is a very abstract notion, soft and difficult to measure, particularly in the face of a threat like terrorism, a threat which propels people like Bob Selenard to draw clear and certain lines. Like I said, I have nothing to hide. The majority of the American people have nothing to hide. And those that do have something to hide should be found out and get what they have coming to them. Elise Spiegel, NPR News, Washington. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ah. So, she's just so good. That was so good. Can you imagine what that piece would have been if you, it was like, because think about it, it's Vox. It's, that's it. And a trip to the bookstore. I mean, and she has that power. She did a piece once for Savvy Traveler where she walked into Port Authority and the story was Port Authority. And she came out with the entire weight of the human condition. Like, I'll start here. This will maybe sound like a small thing, but like from where Audie and I were radio born, like there's a minute of writing in that three and a half minute story and you don't do that. And like, it was like, you know, and she's getting these voices and you're expecting the next voice in the sort of last third of the piece to be like, oh, the analyst, the ACLU, you know, the lawyer. It's like, and she's, no, she has this little tale of going to the bookstore and she takes it off the shelf and she looks and there's this like magical Talmudic moment kind of where, and that is how she balances it. She's just so smart and like, and, and so devoted to story. Like that three and a half minutes, I feel like, it's a lot of like the way that stories play out in longer form on this American life. Like you can imagine the music starting under the trip to the bookstore or whatever. Like there's just she's just she's just and really also great. transparency. Just something yeah. as simple as saying I talked to 15 people. Right. I mean, I think one thing we've learned from this election is sometimes you, people like play tape from one person and they're like that shows. <laughs> <laughs> was one dude. That doesn't show anything. Exactly. But she's like, you know, when I... Somehow the context makes it okay. You feel like, oh, all right, I get it, this report. Well, and it's also like, that. I think that's interesting too, because like, well, I remember like when I would do Voxes, I would want to enumerate how many people I talked to, in part because it's like, 
dudes, you can only talk to so many people in one day. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not pew, you know, kind of. Um, and you can't talk to them if you're waiting for the analyst to call back. No, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and just also, just to say, like, the little details of, like, you know, a tall, thin figure smoking a cigarette. Like, you, she's just, like, you know, sketches them, and you see this little kind of Picasso drawing of, of everybody. I'm just like having a moment thinking about that. Okay. <laughs> All right, this is my last one. It's, it's a little bit on the long side. I'm playing it because I thought it was my most hated thing. Oh. Do I just hit play? Yeah. Okay. Whoops. That's not play. When my producer Jacob was on his culinary investigation at Bowdoin, the students talked about the food of their school like they were in Paris. In the beginning of the year, the ice cream didn't really taste that well. Like, it was, like, kind of watery. And so I know someone, like, wrote a complaint card, like, guys. And then now it's, like, so much better. Like, they just fixed it. Yeah, I've heard, good, I've heard good things about the dessert. Is it good? How do you compete with this? On your first day on campus, there's this lobster bake um, where every student on campus has the choice of having a lobster for dinner or a steak um, or a vegetarian option. It's really phenomenal. If I were like to ask you, maybe like a prospective student was coming to campus and they were asked about the food, what would be your like your one sentence pitch or how would you describe it? It's sort of indescribable in the way that you can't explain to someone how it's always changing and it's always fresh and it's always different and pushes you to try new things, um, which is I think what college is all about, just experimenting and reaching out to new worlds. And you know, the fact that the food here helps you do that as well is incredible. I cannot get over how excited this kid is about the food of Bowdoin. Do you think he talks this way about his professors? Oh, have you tried things that, like you wouldn't have tried otherwise? Like, what kind of what kind of meals or dishes? Oh wow! Um, <laughs> the other night I had an eggplant parmesan pancake. I, you know, I don't think I could have even told you that was a real thing until I had it. You know, I walked past it and didn't grab one, and I went back. Uh, uh, might as well. And it was phenomenal. I had six actually. Eggplant parmesan pancake. I mean, this is completely absurd. This is everything that's wrong with American colleges. We had venison here during deer season. It was really just fresh, locally sourced, different kinds of meats that I would never expect to see in a college dining hall. There's only one solution. If you're looking at liberal arts colleges, don't go to Bowdoin. Don't let your kids go to Bowdoin. Don't let your friends go to Bowdoin. Don't give money to Bowdoin or to any other school that serves amazing food in its dining hall. Because every time you support a school that spends its money on amazing food, every time you cast a vote in favor of eggplant, parmesan, pancakes, and lobster bakes and venison during deer season, you're making it harder and harder for someone like Catherine Hill to create opportunities for poor kids. Suck it up and go to Vassar. Send a message to the Bodens of the world about what really matters. Fresh fruit is atrocious. Sometimes we get bananas, and then sometimes we get strawberries or grapes. But those are like, strawberries and grapes are like, those are a big deal. Like, you go steal like five cups of that. So that you pocket them and, and run out with your pockets full of... Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not joking. <laughs> this is Amanda again, the Vassar sophomore who complained about the guacamole. Amanda, the spoiled Californian, as she described herself. But I will say this for Amanda. She gets it. She understands what's at stake. Atrocious fresh fruit is a small price to pay for a little social justice. I still complain regularly about the food in 
whatnot, but I just feel much better knowing that that money's going towards something useful. I would much prefer that our school be giving money to that than, than trying to make our food better, you know? Worst case scenario, you get the minimum meal plan and you can eat out, it's not a big deal. What do you think? I don't know. I know. All right. I so why, I, I, I'm, I can't wait to hear why you picked this. Well, so when I first heard this, um, I hated it because I'm not a fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I'm one of those people. Like I see the book in the airport, I'm like, ah, oh, blank. I get it. Like it just seems like it's a it's a thing. It's a whole scene. No, I'm not saying this to judge him. Like he does a thing. He's very famous. He makes way more money than all of us. And this podcast, though, is outstanding. And I went from being a person that was like, Malcolm Gladwell, blah, to <laughs> like telling all of my friends about it. And I think the first time I heard it, I was appalled and hated it. And I felt like they were using the halo of public radio and our style to do something else. Um, and it felt sort of disingenuous. And in fact, uh, both To do college, what other thing? To do, when to you say do something else? To just do like tell people what to think. I see. You know, I got like you. just to be like, don't do that. Cast a vote for it. Like it just felt, it was just something that felt uncomfortable to me as somebody who is like an old timey news person who has what are, I guess, fading ideals about like what you do in the newsroom. Uh, but then I also, <laughs> um, and also he kind of got in trouble. Like Bowdoin College was like, what the fuck? You never called our financial aid people you did not sit down with the people you should have sat down with to balance the story. And so I had like real questions about it. Mm. Um, I think at the end of the day, for me, I came down on the side of that this was something that got under my skin. This is something that made me want to learn more about this issue, to investigate why. You it, walked around with it. I walked around with it. And, it. and it was something that I thought I knew about, which is that rich colleges spend a lot of money on amenities and not so much money on the financial aid. And I thought I just kind of knew that story. Mm -hmm. And hearing his version of it told through eggplant parmesan pancakes was, it just worked on me somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it casts, it's a way to talk about an issue in a, in a, in a way that's unexpected. And I think, I think that's what we're trying to do all the time, is to like figure out ways to tell important stories that we need to tell, that we should tell, but like not in a way that's like, eat your pancakes, or what, not your pancakes, your vegetables. Right. He said pancake, that made me think Yeah, of it's it. in our heads now. Eat your eggplant. And it also did something that someone at All Things Considered uh, said to me, and I'm sure he got from someone else, the producer named Art Silverman, which is that, you know, every once in a while, you just gotta make people look at the radio. Yeah. And, like, that's all I want to do. I think yeah. with that uh, heroin uh, Nathan Field story out of Baltimore, the right. record scratch is something I would never do. I just think that's, like, so gimmicky and cheesy. Yeah. But I just thought, you know what? Since I never do it, it would be kind of unexpected. And it's the feeling I had when I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. So I'm going to make people look at the radio. That's what, and when Jay Allison was talking at once about the sonic IDs that they do at, um, at WCAI, he's like, he's like, one reaction that, that happens a lot is like, because they can be so sort of jarring away from the mainline sound of what else is coming through the radio that like people automatically look at their radio. And I'm like... That's, that's when you know you're doing something right, I think. Um, my last thing. Last How much time one. do we have? Where this is it, and then questions. 
Because I want, and I want to play one thing at the very, very end after questions that's wicked short, and I just thought it would be a nice thing to go is this out gonna on. It's going to be embarrassing. No, it won't be embarrassing. It's going to make you cry. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope we have time for this. But um, this, is a, this is a weird one. Um, but basically, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of call-in shows as just a medium. Nothing against them. It's just a taste thing. Um, but I was, uh, I was listening to On Point, again, years ago, 2004, um, driving around um, Cambridge, Mass., and the author Kevin Phillips is on, and he's talking about his then new book, American Dynasty, which is about the Bush family. George W. Bush was president then, of course. And, um, and it's a very critical book, and he's talking about crony capitalism, and Ken, Kevin Phillips is calling George Bush a religious fanatic on the radio, and, and I just have it on because it's on, and I'm like looking for a parking space. And then I pull in to my parking space, and... True to the cliche, I can't get out of my car because this happens. Kevin Phillips, we have a Bush on the line. Jonathan Bush calling from Belmont, Massachusetts. Good evening and welcome, Jonathan Bush. Hey, how are you? Very well, thanks. Jonathan, what do you make of this conversation? Well, you know, I, half of me wishes I left for work a little later, but uh, I'm glad to have heard it, I guess. Um, pl pl I, are you a Bush of the Bush family that we're discussing, Jonathan? Yes, yes. The... the, the, the uh, the religious fanatic is my cousin. Uh, I don't think of him that way, but... You're talking of the president. Yeah. So, and I'm just like, what's gonna happen? <laughs> like, like and, I'm, and what are the chances? I don't know. I, so, so basically, you know, Jonathan Bush, um, who lives in town, you know, like, he... Um, He's like, no, you know, yes, my cousin got religion after the twins were born, but it didn't make him arrogant and elitist like Kevin Phillips is saying. It made him actually more humble and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And um, uh, not to, I mean, I don't mean to qualify what he was saying by saying blah, blah, blah. But, um, but basically, uh, you know, then Ashbrook, Tom Ashbrook brings it back to the, the point of the conversation. Jonathan Bush, let me ask you, when you sit around at, at family gatherings at, at Kenny Bunkport, you know, do people, uh, I don't know, lift a glass and toast the Bush dynasty? No, never. Absolutely not. That's an absolute absurdity. There's jokes about it because people read rags and say, somebody just said Bush dynasty, ha-ha. Uh -huh. But, the, you know, it's an, absolute, it's an absolute sort of anathema that the Bush family would be treated that way, that... that Anybody would do anything because of the name. Whenever a little cousin, you know, says yes to a network about some interview that everybody kind of secretly knows, gee, that might have been because she's related to this or that. It's, you know, it's a very cold chill that runs through the dining room. It, it's totally the opposite. It's almost a fearing of dynasty implications that might sully the good work of somebody who's trying to do community service in a way that they think is important. Kevin Phillips, it's the opposite he, he, from what Kevin is describing is it's that's what's sort of surprising to me. Kevin, here's a bush in our midst, and he says he they just don't see it this way. Well, I wish that uh, he. This is Jonathan Bush, I'm sure, who was the current president's uncle, a uh, cousin. This is the son of that guy, Kevin. Oh, okay, okay, right. 
Well, I don't know whether you're in the financial business, but I, I know that your father was in many, many other bushes. And I'd sort of be interested in getting your take on whether it's unfair to discuss the, uh, all the way back to W.A. Harriman and Company and G.H. Walker and Company and, and, and many, many others, dozens of others, that this is a total focus of the Bushes over four generations? Would you like to say that's not true of your, uh, your father and your uncles? You mean being in financial services? Mm-hmm, that's right. Well, I guess, first of all, no. I mean, I, Dad's got a financial services firm, and I didn't go into it, and my brother didn't go into it. His brother is Billy Bush, who was on the bus. Um, it goes on from it goes on from there. But I just like what I love about this is that, and and again, like I couldn't get out of my car, and I just you know I love good fight, and uh, and it's it's because it's taking this you know form that where you think you know what's going to happen, and that, that there's all of these sort of tropes, and it, it kind of turns it on its head, and it happens, it happened by accident. Like, nobody, like, the things that I've been playing, that Audie's been playing today, and like a lot, you know, when I think a big, um, a big message of, of this particular festival is, um, is one thing that we're always looking for, both when we find stories and make stories and also listen to each other's stories, is surprise. Like, we just want to be surprised, you know? We want to hear something like we haven't heard before. And, um, and I, had, I, had not, I had not heard that before, listening to a call-in show. So. Hi there, we're going to pop out for a quick break, and when we get back, we'll hear the Q&A portion of this session. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, Resound. Resound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So um, now if you have any questions for us, we have a little bit of time. We won't um, take up too much, but there's some microphones making their way. And, uh, microphones making their way. Yeah. Be succinct because I'm judging you. <laughs> no, I'm not really judging you. I'm, I'm editing you, but I'm not judging you. Hello? Oh, friendly neighborhood conference manager reminding everyone it's always okay to cry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, so, when I was listening to that 1998 This American Life segment, I was thinking, as, as the guy was saying, the specific time that he got each phone call back in 1957, does he really remember the exact time at which he got each of those phone calls? And then that made me think about the sort of, um, if he does, you know, that's impressive. And if not, uh, does that cross the line? Because This American Life has actually gotten in trouble for um, sure. uh, airing stories that let those kinds of details slide. And so... Yeah. Um, well, one big two, one in particular, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the two of you coming from kind of different sides or different realms of public radio, um, how do you both feel about those things? It's a good question. Like, I, it's funny, because I've never had that question in my mind the many, many times that I've listened to it. And I guess I could only just think that if all of those horrible, traumatic things happened to you on the same morning, that, like, it would stick with you. And, like, maybe it was, those weren't the exact times, but they were probably the approximate times. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I always just assume that... Because that, that, Job... If you listen, actually, and also please listen to the rest of that story. I am such an evangelist for this story. I just think it's like one of the greatest things I've ever heard. It's in an episode called Pinned by History in 1998. Both of the stories were Scots. One was in tape only, um, you know, not narrated. Um, and uh, it's like 40 minutes long. And as you listen to it, like, Job is one of, it's just a natural-born st- storyteller. He's one of the best storytellers out there. And, um, and he remembers a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, I mean, my answer is going to be less satisfactory to those of you who are not at a newsroom with literally an army of librarians. Um, when we do a story and someone tells us the things, lots of times we go look it up. I mean, to go back to that Baltimore story, Nathan Field told us about his son being murdered, and it was very sad, and I was sad, and then I walked out of the house, and I said, we need some police records to figure out how and when, what happened, if it really happened. I mean, it just was like, we need to know that. And have I, have some stories not gone to air because facts didn't hold up, or just felt like, this just doesn't feel good? Yeah. Yeah, and stories can also become less satisfying because you're like, ah, like, you know, goddamn facts getting in the way of a good tale, you know, that can happen. Yeah. Hi. 
Um, my question for you two is, your stories that you're highlighting now are you know, things that really inspire and surprise you. And um, looking forward now post-election, I feel like my reaction to the election is, oh, I'm frustrated. Oh, everyone I know is saying the same thing. Oh, everyone wants to pursue the same stories. Oh, mm. this is very boring. Um, and I was wondering what stories you're looking at pursuing that are going to inspire the same sort of love and affection that you feel for the tape you just played us. How can we be as good as the people we admire? Yeah, I mean, that's literally, the dear case. journal. That's like what I'm going to be writing tonight. I don't know. Wait, but it's the question, what stories are we looking to pursue in this post-election for ourselves? I don't know. I don't know. Like, we're having that conversation at the show. Yeah. You know, um, you know it wasn't that expected an outcome. And so, like, and we put together a new show this week that we started making on Wednesday. And our show goes out on Friday. And I don't... I don't think that we've done that before. I'm not sure. In the life of the show, who knows? Not since Zoe and I have been there anyway. So, like... I mean, we're a train, right? Our train is already moving. I'm just going to walk out of here and get back on the train again. And there's stories that we're doing all the time. Um, Certainly right now, I'm in the process of talking with my producers about the first hundred days and, like, what what we're going to do at the end of that first hundred days. More broadly, I would go back to an axiom that people say about radio all the time, which is that it is a medium in close-up, and that you're not going to tell every story, and therefore you should not be sitting here thinking, well, what will I do? Because so many other people out there are doing stories. There's a lot of stories to tell. Um, And it's a matter of like, what piece of it are you going to tell? Um, maybe there are some of us out there that have like the giant responsibility as the media, mainstream media that is like failing everything in the world. I get that. Um, and I'll own that. But for a lot of you who are getting ready to do some work, start thinking about what piece of your own work is relevant to current events. You know, you don't have to like change everything you're doing, but what piece of today is meaningful right now and will help people understand like what's going on right now. You, you can do that. Um, and you will find very quickly that your corner of the, the universe, whether that is a hard news universe or a softer universe, like there or is somewhere a little, in between, somewhere in between, there's some piece of it that you can take on for yourself. You don't have to take on the whole thing. Um, I have a comment for Sean. I just want to say thank you so much for uh, crying. Because <laughs> I just okay, be- team crying. I get it. I'm, I, I'm in therapy. I'm working on this. We were just talking about this yesterday. Um, I just had that kind of earnest caring. It's like it's so nice to hear because you get so you can get so burnt out that yeah. you you know it's just so nice. And I had a question for Adi. You know, I'm a I'm a reporter at a member station in Arizona. And so we're always kind of, we've got you guys in the back of our mind, always thinking about what we can feed you guys. And I'm wondering what you're tired from hearing, uh, hearing from member stations and what you're really hungry to hear from us. That's a great question and maybe a longer answer. That's a really good question. Um, there's, I don't think there's anything that, well, I know. Okay. Came to me. Good. Um, I don't want you to do things that you think we would want. And by that, I mean oftentimes in the meeting, a story will come up, and like everyone in our meeting, in the room, would go, oh, if we would do it, 
maybe we shouldn't do it. Like, it feels almost like too cliche of an NPR story. Um, and we joke about it being an NPR story. And I think sometimes people pitch us things that they think like, oh, NPR will really want this because... And then, honestly, everything that you put in that Mad Libs should tell you to just like maybe back away. Um, not because it's not a good topic, like sometimes there are issues that need to be covered, um, but the way that it's pitched, I can sense somebody trying to do it in what they think we will want. Yeah. And that's not what we're looking for. Same what we're us. looking for is idiosyncrasies. We're looking for something that conveys a sense of place. We're looking for something that conveys like your sense of place, because then otherwise, they would send me. But they don't want that, right? They want that voice. So I think that is the thing... It's not specific, but like that's the thing I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, yes, more. Hi. Thanks. It's Julia. Uh, thank you. This, this oh, was there amazing. You are. Hello. Uh, Julia Barton. I was the editor of Revisionist History, so this has been a really great experience, like hearing it in a room. Yeah, but I mean, you know, since I'm here, I, I just thought, you know, we could talk briefly just about that moment, and also about the moment we're in right now, which, um, you know, that that podcast did open up a different kind of rhetorical space in a way. Um, it, it has elements of reporting and it has elements of like basically a sermon. And that's what I was balancing as an editor, sort of once I figured out what it was that we were doing, you know? So I'm, I'm thinking about ways in which we make space for ourselves now and the effectiveness even of using rhetoric in that way, in this very clearly argumentative way, while still incorporating the tools of empathetic audio journalism. And, and it, I struggle with it, you know, as an editor. That's, that's a difficult move, you know. I didn't write that piece by, by any means, you know, but I was in charge of sort of making the story effective. Yeah, and it was. I mean, like I said, I've been living with that story ever since I heard it, and it, I, it comes back to me all the time as someone who does do stories that touch on, like, well, what's fair and what's not fair, and why don't I ever just say what's not fair? Like, what about my own training has made me not do that? And how do I reconcile with that? And what does that mean going forward, you know, for the, the job that I'm doing in particular? Um, so it's something that got under my skin in a good way. Uh, if you're worried that your boss will hate me, that's a, it's okay. No, 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 you don't have to <laughs> apologize. I, I think it was, it's a good conversation. Yeah. The whole thing is to provoke conversation in a way, but, you know, there, there are issues. Right. Yeah. I think maybe one more, and then I, ha then I just have a short thing to end on, and then we'll do some... Drugs? No, I don't know why I said that. I didn't, I didn't mean it. I did not mean that. Or did I? And I have I? one other thing to say before you play your thing. Do you have a question for real? Okay. Uh. Oh, I was... Oh. Yes, no? Is it working? Okay. Um, hi. So, uh, I've been asking everybody this question. So, for you, those of you who have already asked this, uh, apologies for being repetitive. So... I guess between the, the blind spots of the progressive media and mainstream media, which we have been talking about a lot uh, this weekend, and the kind of various machinations of the right-wing media, which we have not been talking about a lot, um, I think, at all in this weekend, 
Um, I do think that as a journalist, the, um, the very idea of a fact has been under fire and has sustained some very considerable damage yeah. in the past few weeks. And I'm just wondering how you're both planning to respond to that. We have... Wait, all... can you say your question again? Just turned off. Nope, here it is. Um, I'm saying that between the blind spots in the progressive and mainstream media, which we've discussed a lot, and the various machinations and blind spots in the right-wing media, which we have not discussed, the very idea of a fact as a thing that can be like accepted, uh, the very idea of a fact that is not partisan, right. I think has been attacked in a Under sustainable fire. way. Yes. And has sustained considerable damage. We, we and how do we plan to respond to that Yeah, we have responded to it. I'm sure we will in other ways, too, on the show. But we had an episode on um, a few couple... How long ago was that episode? Four weeks ago. Thank you, Zoe. Um, where um, there was just something that had gotten particularly under Iris' skin that he was just like, you know, I feel like the mainstream media... Um, is like fact-based and trying to, you know, tell the truth and and explain what actually happened and what is the record. And the right-wing media is politicizing facts or just not doing that. And, and, you know, and people have their own sort of versions of the truth that they go to, which make them more comfortable. Um, and so that whole episode started with... A moment that was like, you know, early on in the election, not early on in the election, actually it was more recent, but, you know, the, the um, press conference that Trump gave saying that, like, I now accept that, you know, that Barack Obama was born in the United States. And, uh, and you know, and Jake Tapper coming on our show and saying that it just, like, made him super mad because, like, he, you know, because of, of Trump saying uh, that Hillary started it and all this stuff, and it's just like, yeah, and it's just like, what can you do? Like, you can keep just trying to soldier on and tell the yeah, truth. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely talking about that in our newsroom a lot and have been for many months. I think that the live annotations of debates, which really, like, brought in a kabillion page views for NPR, um, reflected a real thirst for that from the public. Um, it also reflected the fact that our brand is strong enough, meaning that people trust it, that people said, if you guys tell me in real time, this fact is this, this is in dispute, what this person said, like, and you have a team of reporters who are all, their one job is just their topic to say that fact was wrong, like, I believe you. Now, is that a fragile trust? Can that be broken? Yes. That is what we all live with all the time if you get into this work, period. That's the gig. Um, but it is something that we're talking about. It is something we're discussing going forward. We don't have the answer to that yet. We do not know what this administration will look like, how it will play out, how its people will operate. We have very much an idea from the last couple of months, but we don't know for fact what it means for the kinds of voices we have heard so far speaking for that campaign to have the full weight of the government behind them. And it is something we're going to wrestle with because... I know for public media, we are often over-reliant on institutional sources, whether that be a think tank or a government institution. We say, the so-and-so department of X says. Um, 
I think for many generations who have had their faith shaken in government before, they have already had the experience of thinking, well, I'm not sure I can trust what the government says. This generation is about to have it as well. So I just want to finish with um, a piece of tape that uh, has never aired anywhere, and in fact, only about four people in the world have oh, wait, heard I it. Oh, wait, one other thing. Yes. Yeah, because this is going to be like fun or something. It's going to, yeah. well, I, it I have, might be I know, fun. I know, but this, this is housekeeping. Um, so one very quick thing I need to say, or my bosses will hate me, is that oh, at right. all things considered, we do want to hear from you. And our producer, Matthew Ozug, is here. Where is Matt? Stand up, Matt. Uh, he is a bearded guy. Good luck finding him again. No, just kidding. His man is right there. Um, and we are looking for people who have commentary ideas. We are looking for your regular news pitches. Yes, I know it's been hard in the past, and I hope some of you have stopped by our table today because there is obviously a, now a portal for which we're taking ideas um, and can submit things. But I hope that you feel the difference in the program during the last year. I hope that you're hearing it. And I hope you know that I'm here, even though, honestly, everyone in Washington is at like a big donor weekend thing this weekend. I came here because I want you on the program. So please see Matt, even if you're just shaking hands, even if you just want to shake hands with me, it is much appreciated. And I hope to hear from you again soon. So, uh, almost nobody in the world has heard this piece of tape. Basically, me and this reporter, Zach McDermott, had the privilege of interviewing Jeff Garland for a story we were doing about comedy. And he said this thing at the end that I, that I thought spoke to what we're all up to here and the friendships that have developed because of this event and because of our work and our community in general. And so I just wanted to end with Jeff. First off, you choose to, to who you associate with. But it's not like I picked all these people who are close friends of mine who are famous. I mean, I knew Louis C.K. when we've been friends since we were, you know, 100 years ago. Right. Same with Ira Glass. I was friends with him in Chicago. He had no national voice. Right. You know, any John Stewart. We were, we were both, you know, bombing together in, in New York. I mean, these are all people that I looked at when, you know, and I liked them on a personal level, but also I felt that they were doing something interesting. So it's not surprising to me that these peers of mine have gone on to great success. And that must be really gratifying, too. It is gratifying. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
You know, I've not seen anybody who really has something to offer and is pretty much together. And in terms of not letting their ego dominate them, I've never seen anyone not become successful in my time. Well, that's good advice. I'm going to take, I'm going to take that as advice. Please do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. And a special thanks to Shelley Steffens, who recorded and mixed all of the presentations from the 2016 conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org or our podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. All right, speak soon. <laughs>